0: Appendices to Futurist Prediction Methods and Accuracy, by Dan Liu. Appendix, Brief Notes on Superforecasting. Very difficult to predict more than three to five years out. People generally don't do much better than random. Later in the book, ten years is cited as a basically impossible time frame, but scopes that to certain kinds of predictions. The earlier statement of three to five years is more general, greater than Taleb, Kahneman and I agree there is no evidence that geopolitical or economic forecasters can predict anything 10 years out beyond the excruciatingly obvious, there will be conflicts and the odd lucky hits that are inevitable whenever lots of forecasters make lots of forecasts. These limits on predictability are the predictable results of the butterfly dynamics of non-linear systems. In my EPJ research, the accuracy of expert predictions declined toward chance 5 years out. And yet, this sort of forecasting is common, even within institutions that should know better. One possibility is that people like Bill Gates are right due to hindsight bias, but that doesn't seem correct WRT, for example, being at Google making it obvious that mobile was the only way forward circa 2010. Bulma prediction, there's no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share. No chance. Very important to precisely write down forecasts. Big idea predictors inaccurate, as in, heavily rely on one or a few big hammers, like global warming, ecological disaster, Moore's law. Etc., to drive everything. Specific knowledge predictors, relatively accurate, relied heavily on probabilistic thinking, used different analytical tools as appropriate. The forecasters are fluent with numbers, generally, aced numerical proficiency test given to forecasters, think probabilistically. The forecasters, not particularly high IQ, typical non super forecaster IQ from forecaster population was 70% eel, typical forecaster IQ was 80% eel. See also, this Tetlock interview with Tyler Cohen if you don't want to read the whole book, although the book is a very quick read because it's written the standard pop size style, with a lot of anecdote stories. On the people we looked at versus the people Tetlock looked at, the predictors we looked at are operating in a very different style from the folks studied in the studies that led to the superforecasting book. Both futurists and tech leaders were trying to predict a vision for the future whereas superforecasters were asked to answer very specific questions. Another major difference among the accurate predictors is that the accurate predictors we looked at, other than Kaplan, had very deep expertise in their fields. This may be one reason for the difference in timelines here, where it appears that some of our predictors can predict things more than three to five years out, contra Tetlock's assertion. Another difference is in the kind of thing being predicted, a lot of the predictions we're looking at here are fundamentally whether or not a trend will continue or if a nascent trend will become a long-running trend, which seems easier than a lot of the questions Tetlock had his forecasters try to answer. For example, in the opening of Superforecasting, Tetlock gives predicting the Arab Spring as an example of something that would have been practically impossible, while the conditions for it had been there for years, the proximal cause of the Arab Spring was a series of coincidences that would have been impossible to predict. This is quite different from and arguably much more difficult than someone in 1980 guessing that computers will continue to get smaller and faster, leading to handheld computers more powerful than supercomputers from the 80s. Appendix, other evaluations. Justin Rye on Heinlein, Clark, and Asimov. Holden Karnofsky, Arb research on Heinlein, Clark, and Asimov, as well as Karnofsky on Kurzweil, Kahn, and Weiner. Various on Ray Kurzweil, try googling, without quotes, Kurzweil 86% accuracy. A variety of HN commenters on a futurist who scored themselves at 50% accuracy. Laurie Tratt on Asum 2005 predictions on what will be important in computing. Of these, the evaluations above, the only intersection with the futurists evaluated here is Kurzweil. Holden Karnofsky says. A 2013 project assessed Ray Kurzweil's 1999 predictions about 2009, and a 2020 follow-up assessed his 1999 predictions about 2019. Kurzweil is known for being interesting at the time rather than being right with hindsight, and a large number of predictions were found and scored, so I consider this study to have similar advantages to the above study. Kurzweil is notorious for his very bold and contrarian predictions, and I'm overall inclined to call his track record something between mediocre and fine, too aggressive overall, but with some notable hits. Karnofsky's evaluation of Kurzweil being fine to mediocre relies on these two analyses done on less wrong and then uses a very generous interpretation of the results to conclude that Kurzweil's predictions are fine. Those two post rate predictions as true, weakly true, cannot decide, weakly false, or false. Karnofsky then compares the number of true plus weekly true to false plus weekly false, which is one level of rounding up to get an optimistic result. Another way to look at it is that any level other than true is false when read is written. This issue is magnified if you actually look at the data and methodology used in the LW analyzers. In the second post, the author, Stuart Armstrong indirectly noted that there were actually no predictions that were, by strong consensus, very true when he noted that the most true prediction had a mean score of 1.3, 1 equals true. 2 equals weakly true, 5 equals false, and the second highest rated prediction had a mean score of 1.4. Although Armstrong doesn't note this in the post, if you look at the data, you'll see that the third most true prediction had a mean score of 1.45 and the fourth had a mean score of 1.6, i.e. if you round to the nearest prediction score, only 3 out of 105 predictions score true and 32 are more than equals 4.5 and score false. Karnowsky reads Armstrong's as scoring 12% of predictions true, but the post effectively makes no comment on what fraction of predictions were scored true and the 12% came from summing up the total number of each rating given. I'm not going to say that taking the mean of each question is the only way one could aggregate the numbers, taking the median or modal values could also be argued for, as well as some more sophisticated scoring function, an extremizing function, etc., but summing up all of the votes across all questions results in a nonsensical number that shouldn't be used for almost anything if every rater rated every prediction or there was a systematic interleaving of who rated what questions, then the number could be used for something, though not as a score for what fraction of predictions are accurate, but since each rater could skip any questions, although people were instructed to start rating at the first question and rate all questions until they stop, people did not do that and skipped arbitrary questions, aggregating the number of each score given is not meaningful and actually gives very little insight into what fraction of questions are true. There's an air of rigor about all of this, there are lots of numbers, standard deviations are discussed, Etc., but the way most people, including Karnowski, interpret the numbers in the post is incorrect. I find it a bit odd that, with all of the commentary of these LW posts, few people spent the one minute, and I mean one minute literally, it took me a minute to read the post, see the comment Armstrong made, which is a red flag, and then look at the raw data, it would take to look at the data and understand what the post is actually saying, but as we've noted previously, almost no one actually reads what they're citing. Coming back to Karnowski's rating of Kurzweil as fine to mediocre, this relies on two levels of rounding. One, doing the wrong kind of aggregation on the raw data to round an accuracy of perhaps 3% up to 12% and then rounding up again by doing the comparison mentioned above instead of looking at the number of true statements. If we use a strict reading and look at the 3%, the numbers aren't so different from what we see in this post. If we look at Armstrong's other post, there are too few raters to really produce any kind of meaningful aggregation. Armstrong rated every prediction, One person rated 68% of predictions, and no one else even rated half of the 172 predictions. The eight predictors rated 506 predictions, so the number of ratings is equivalent to having three raters rate all predictions, but the results are much noisier due to the arbitrary way people decided to pick predictions. This issue is much worse for the 2009 predictions than the 2019 predictions due to the smaller number of raters combined with the sparseness of most raters, making this data set fairly low fidelity. If you want to make a simple inference from the 2019 data, you're probably best off using Armstrong's ratings and discarding the rest. There are non-simple analyzers one could do, but if you're going to do that, you might as well just rate the predictions yourself. Another fundamental issue with the analysis is that it relies on aggregating votes from a population that's heavily drawn from less wrong readers and the associated community. As we discussed here, it's common to see the most upvoted comments in forums like HN, Lobsters, LW, etc., be statements that can clearly be seen to be wrong with no specialized knowledge and a few seconds of thought, and an example is given from LW in the link, so why should an aggregation of votes from the LW community be considered meaningful? I often see people refer to the high-level wisdom of crowds idea, but if we look at the specific statements endorsed by online crowds, we can see that these crowds are often not so wise. In the ARB research evaluation, discussed below, They get around this problem by checking reviewing answers themselves and also offering a bounty for incorrectly graded predictions, which is one way to deal with having untrustworthy raters, but Armstrong's work has no mitigation for this issue. On the Karnofsky-ARB research evaluation, Karnofsky appears to use a less strict scoring than I do and once again optimistically rounds up. The ARB research report scores each question as unambiguously wrong, ambiguous or near-miss, or unambiguously right but Karnofsky's scoring removes the ambiguous and near-miss results, Whereas my scoring only removes the ambiguous results, the idea being that a near-miss is still a miss. Accounting for those reduces the scores substantially but still leaves Heinlein, Clark, and Asimov with significantly higher scores than the futurists discussed in the body of this post. For the rest, many of the predictions that were scored as unambiguously right are ones I would have declined to rate for similar reasons to predictions which I declined to rate, for example, a prediction that something may well happen was rated as unambiguously right and I would consider that unfalsifiable and therefore not included. There are also quite a few unambiguously right predictions that I would rate as incorrect using a strict reading similar to the readings that you can see below in the detailed appendix. Another place where Karnofsky rounds up is that ARB research notes that the predictions are usually very vague. Almost none take the form by year 10 technology Y will pass on metric Z dot. This makes the prediction accuracy from futurists' ARB research looked at not comparable to precise predictions of the kind Kaplan or Karnowski himself makes, but Karnowski directly uses those numbers to justify why his own predictions are accurate without noting that the numbers are not comparable. Since the non comparable numbers were already rounded up, there are two levels of rounding here, more on this later. As noted above, some of the predictions are ones that I wouldn't rate because I don't see where the prediction is, such as this one, this is the exact text of the prediction being scored. According to the ARB Research Spreadsheet, which was scored unambiguously right. Application of computer technology to professional sports be counterproductive. Would the public become less interested in sports or in betting on the outcome if matters became more predictable? Or would there always be enough unpredictability to keep interest high? And would people derive particular excitement from beating the computer when low-ranking players on a particular team suddenly started? This seems like a series of questions about something that might happen, but wouldn't be false if none of these happened, so would not count as a prediction in my book. Similarly, I would not have rated the following prediction, which Arb also scored unambiguously right. Its potential is often realized in ways that seem miraculous, not because of idealism but because of the practical benefits to society. Thus, the computer's ability to foster human creativity may well be utilized to its fullest, not because it would be a wonderful thing but because it will serve important social functions. Moreover, we are already moving in there. Another kind of prediction that was sometimes scored unambiguously correct that I declined to score were predictions of the form this trend that's in progress will become somewhat bigger, more important, such as the following. The consequences of human irresponsibility in terms of waste and pollution will become more apparent and unbearable with time and again, attempts to deal with this will become more strenuous. It is to be hoped that by 2019, advances in technology will place tools in our hands that will help accelerate the process whereby the deterioration of the environment will be reversed. On Karnofsky's larger point, that we should trust long-termist predictions because futurists basically did fine and long-termists are taking prediction more seriously and trying harder and should therefore generate better prediction. That's really a topic for another post, but I'll briefly discuss here because of the high intersection with this post. There are two main pillars of this argument. First, that futurists basically did fine, which, as we've seen, relies on a considerable amount of rounding up. And second, that the methodologies that long-termists are using today are considerably more effective than what futurists did in the past. Karnofsky says that the futurists he looked at collect casual predictions, no probabilities given, little to no reasoning given, no apparent attempt to collect evidence and weigh arguments, whereas Karnofsky's summaries use, among other things, reports that open philanthropy employees spent thousands of hours on, systematically presenting evidence and considering arguments and counter-arguments a serious attempt to take advantage of the nascent literature on how to make good predictions, for example, the authors, and I, have generally done calibration training, and have tried to use the language of probability to be specific about our uncertainty. We've seen, when evaluating futurists with an eye towards evaluating long-termists, Karnofsky heavily rounds up in the same way Kurzweil and other futurists do, to paint the picture they want to create. There's also the matter of his summary of a report on Kurzweil's predictions being incorrect because he didn't notice the author of that report used a methodology that produced nonsense numbers that were favorable to the conclusion that Karnofsky favors. It's true that Karnofsky and the reports he cites do the superficial things that the forecasting literature notes is associated with more accurate predictions, like stating probabilities. But for this to work, the probabilities need to come from understanding the data. If you take a pile of data, incorrectly interpret it and then round up the interpretation further to support a particular conclusion, throwing a probability on it at the end is not likely to make it accurate. Although he doesn't use these words, a key thing Tetlock notes in his work is that people who round things up or down to conform to a particular agenda produce low-accuracy predictions. Since Karnofsky's errors and rounding heavily lean in one direction, that seems to be happening here. We can see this in other analyses as well. Although digging into material other than futurist predictions is outside of the scope of this post, Nostalgebraist has done this and he said, in a private communication that he gave me permission to mention, that Karnofsky's summary of Slash is substantially more optimistic about AIR timelines than the underlying report and that there's at least one major concern raised in the report that's not brought up as a con in Karnofsky's summary and Nostalgebraist later wrote this post, where he, implicitly, notes that the methodology used in a report he examined in detail is fundamentally not so different than what the futurists we discussed used. There are quite a few things that may make the report appear credible, it's hundreds of pages of research, there's a complex model, etc., but when it comes down to it, the model boils down to a few simple variables. In particular, a huge fraction of the variance of whether or not tie is likely or not likely comes down to the amount of improvement will occur in terms of hardware cost, particularly flops slash dollar. The output of the model can range from 34% to 88% depending how much improvement we get in flops slash dollar after 2025. The part about all of this that makes this fundamentally the same thing that the futurists here did is that the estimate of the flop dollar which is instrumental for this prediction is pulled from thin air by someone who is not a deep expert in semiconductors, computer architecture, or a related field that might inform this estimate. As Karnofsky notes, a number of things were done in an attempt to make this estimate reliable, the authors, and I have generally done calibration training and have tried to use the language of probability, but, when you come up with a model where a single variable controls most of the variances and the estimate for that variable is picked out of thin air, all of the modeling work actually reduces my confidence in the estimate. If you say that based on your intuition, you think there's some significant probability of tie by 2100, 10% or 50% or 80% or whatever number you want, I'd say that sounds plausible, why not? Things are improving quickly and may continue to do so, but wouldn't place any particular faith in the estimate. If you build a model where the output hinges on a relatively small number of variables and then say that there's an 80% chance, based a critical variable out of thin air, should that estimate be more or less confidence-inspiring than the estimate based solely on intuition? I don't think the answer should be that output is higher confidence. The direct guess of 80% is at least honest about its uncertainty. In the model-based case, since the model doesn't propagate uncertainties and the choice of a high but uncertain number can cause the model to output a fairly certain number, like 88%, There's a disconnect between the actual uncertainty produced by the model and the probability estimate. At one point, in summarizing the report, Karnowski says, I consider the evolution analysis to be very conservative, because machine learning is capable of much faster progress than the sort of trial and error associated with natural selection. Even if one believes in something along the lines of human brain's reason in unique ways, unmatched and unmatchable by a modern-day AI, it seems that whatever is unique about human brains should be rediscoverable if one is able to essentially rerun the whole history of natural selection. And even this very conservative analysis estimates a approximately 50% chance of transformative AI by 2100. But it seems very strong to call this a very conservative estimate when the estimate implicitly relies on future flops slash dollar improvements staying above some arbitrary, unsupported, threshold. In the appendix of the report itself, it's estimated that there will be a 6 order of magnitude, OOM, improvement and that a 4 oom improvement would be considered conservative but why should we expect that 6 OM is the amount of headroom left for hardware improvement and 4 oom is some kind of conservative goal that will very likely reach given how instrumental these estimates are to the output of the model there's a sense in which the uncertainty of the final estimate has to be at least as large as the uncertainty of these estimates multiplied by their impact on the model but that can't be the case here given the lack of evidence or justification for these inputs to the model more generally the whole methodology is backwards If you have deep knowledge of a topic, then it can be valuable to put a number down to convey the certainty of your knowledge to other people, and if you don't have deep knowledge but are trying to understand an area, then it can be valuable to state your uncertainties so that you know when you're just guessing. But here, we have a fairly confidently stated estimate, Nostalgia notes that Karnofsky says BioAnchors estimates a greater than 10% chance of transformative AI 2036, approximately 50% chance by 2055, and an approximately 80% chance by 2100. That's based off of a model that's nonsense that relies on a variable that's picked out of thin air. Naming a high probability after the fact and then naming a lower number and saying that's conservative when it's based on this kind of modeling is just window dressing. Back to other evaluators, on Justin Rye's evaluations, I would grade the predictions as written and therefore more strictly than he did and would end up with lower scores. For the predictors we looked at in this document who mostly or nearly exclusively give similar predictions, I declined to give them anything like a precise numerical score. To be clear, I think there's value in trying to score vague predictions and near misses, but that's a different thing than this document did, so the scores aren't directly comparable. A number of people have said that predictions by people who make bold predictions, the way Kurzweil does, are actually pretty good. After all, if someone makes a lot of bold predictions and they're all off by 10 years, that person will have useful insights even if they lose all their bets and get taken to the cleaners in prediction markets. However, doesn't mean that someone who makes bold predictions should always get credit for making bold predictions. For example, in Kurzweil's case, 7% accuracy might not be bad if he uniformly predicted really bold stuff like unbounded lifespan by 2011. However, it only applies if the hits and misses are both bold predictions, which was not the case in the sampled set of predictions for Kurzweil here. For Kurzweil's predictions evaluated in this document, Kurzweil's correct predictions tended to be very boring, for example, there will be no giant economic collapse that stops economic growth. Cochlear implants will be in widespread use in 2019, predicted in 1999, etc. The former is a Kaplan-esque bet against people who were making wild predictions that there would be severe or total economic collapse. There's value in bets like that, but it's also not surprising when such a bet is successful. For the latter, a data I could quickly find on cochlear implant rates showed that implant rates slowly linearly increased from the time Kurzweil made the bet until 2019. I would call that a correct prediction, but the prediction is basically just betting that nothing drastically drops cochlear implant rates, making that another Kaplan-esque safe bet and not a bet that relies on Kurzweil's ideas about the law of accelerating growth that his wild bets rely on. If someone makes 40 boring bets of which 7 are right and another person makes 40 boring bets and 22 wild bets and 7 of their boring bets and 0 of their wild bets are right. These are arbitrary numbers as I didn't attempt to classify Kurzweil's bets as wild or not other than the 7 that were scored as correct. Do you give the latter person credit for having a pretty decent accuracy given how wild their bets were? I would say no. On the linked HN thread from a particular futurist, a futurist scored themselves 5 out of 10, but most HN commenters scored the same person at 0 out of 10 or, generously, at 1 out of 10, with the general comment that the person and other futurists tend to score themselves much too generously. 6 Quarks I hate it when futurists cherry-pick an outlier situation and say their prediction was accurate, like the bartender example. Karate robot, I wanted to say the same thing. He moved the goalposts from things which would draw hoots of derision from an audience from the year 2022 to things which there has been some marginal, unevenly distributed, incremental change to in the last 10 years, then said he got it about 50% right. More generally, this is the issue I have with futurists, they get things wrong, and then just keep making more predictions. I suppose that's okay for them to do, unless they try to get people to believe them, and make decisions based on their guesses. Chilicea, reminded me of the Ray, Kurzweil, predictions, extremely generous grading. Appendix, other reading. Andrew Gelman on forecast bets as probability assessments. Nostag braced on how a lot of AI commenters are behaving like futurists of days past. Scott Alexander on the optimistic side of an AI progress bet winning. Rodney Brooks on success to date on takings the pessimistic side on AI progress, he calls this the realistic side but, in this context, I consider that to be a more loaded term. Brian Kaplan on how no one looked into his quantitative results, despite many comments on whether or not his work was correct. See also, me on the same phenomenon elsewhere. Appendix, detailed information on predictions. Ray Kurzweil. 4.59 for rated predictions if you feel like the ones I didn't include that one could arguably include should count, then 762. This list comes from Wikipedia's bulleted list of Kurzweil's predictions at the time Peter Diamandis, Kurzweil's co-founder for SingularityU, cited it to bolster the claim that Kurzweil has an 86% prediction accuracy rate. Off the top of my head, this misses quite a few predictions that Kurzweil made, such as life expectancy being over 100 by 2019 and 120 by 2029, prediction made in 1999, and unbounded, Life expectancy increasing at one year per year, by 2011, prediction made in 2001, that a computer would beat the top human in chess by 2000, prediction made in 1990. It's likely that Kurzweil's accuracy rate would change somewhat if we surveyed all of his predictions, but it seems extremely implausible for the rate to hit 86%. And, more broadly, looking at Kurzweil's vision of what the world would be like, it also seems impossible that we live in a world that's generally close to Kurzweil's imagined future. 1985. Voice activated typewriter, speech writer by 1985, founded a company to build this in 1982. No. Not true in any meaningful sense. Speech to text with deep learning, circa 2013, was accurate enough that it could be used, with major corrections, on a computer, but it would have been hopeless for a typewriter. Early 2000s, Wikipedia notes that this is listed before 2010 in Kurzweil's chronology, so this should be significantly before 2010 unless the book is very poorly organized. Translating telephones allow people to speak to each other in different languages. No. Today, this works poorly and translations are comically bad, but can sort of work in a help a tourist get around sort of way with deep learning, but was basically hopeless in 2010. Machines designed to transcribe speech into computer text allow deaf people to understand spoken words. No. For above, very poor in 2010. Exoskeletal, robotic leg prostheses allow the paraplegic to walk. No. Maybe some prototype existed, but this still isn't meaningfully deployed in 2022. Telephone calls are routinely screened by intelligent answering machines that ask questions to determine the call's nature and priority. Definitely not in 2010. This arguably exists in 2022, although I think it would be a stretch to call phone trees intelligent since they generally get confused if you don't do the keyword matching they're looking for. Cybernetic chauffeurs can drive cars for humans and can be retrofitted into existing cars. They work by communicating with other vehicles and with sensors embedded along the roads. No. Early 21st century, Wikipedia notes that this is listed before 2010 in Kurzweil's chronology, so this should be significantly before 2010 unless the book is very poorly organized. The classroom is dominated by computers. Intelligent courseware that can tailor itself to each student by recognizing their strengths and weaknesses. Media technology allows students to manipulate and interact with virtual depictions of the systems and personalities they are studying. No. If you really want to make a stretch argument, you could say this about 2022, but I'd still say no for 2022. A small number of highly skilled people dominates the entire production sector. Tailoring of products for individuals is common. No. You could argue that, as written, the second part of this was technically satisfied, but that was really in a trivial way compared the futurist vision Kurzweil was predicting. Drugs are designed and tested in simulations that mimic the human body. No. Blind people navigate and read text using machines that can visually recognize features of their environment. Not in 2010. Deep learning unlocked some of this later, though, and continues to improve. 2010. PCs are capable of answering queries by accessing information wirelessly via the Internet. Yes. 2009. Most books will be read on screens rather than paper. No. Most texts will be created using speech recognition technology. No. Intelligent roads and driverless cars will be in use, mostly on highways. No. People use personal computers the size of rings, pins, credit cards and books. No. One of these was true, books, but the prediction is an and and not an or. Personal worn computers provide monitoring of body functions, automated identity and directions for navigation. No. Arguably true with things like a Garmin band some athletes wear around the chest for heart rate, but not true when the whole statement is taken into account or in the spirit of the prediction. Cables are disappearing. Computer peripheries use wireless communication. No. Even in 2022 cables generally haven't come close to disappearing and, unfortunately, wireless peripherals generally work poorly, Gary Bernhardt, Ben Kuhn, etc. People can talk to their computer to give commands. Yes. I would say this one is actually a no in spirit if you look at Kurzweil's futurist vision, but it was technically true that this was possible in 2009, although it worked quite poorly. Computer displays built into eyeglasses for augmented reality are used. No. You can argue that someone, somewhere, was using these, but pilots were using head-mounted displays in 1999, so it's nonsensical to argue that limited uses like that constitute a successful prediction of the future. Computers can recognize their owner's face from a picture or video. No. Three-dimensional chips are commonly used. No. Sound-producing speakers are being replaced with very small chip-based devices that can place high-resolution sound anywhere in three-dimensional space. No. A $1,000 computer can perform a trillion calculations per second. Undefined. Technically true, but using peak ops to measure computer performance is generally considered too silly to do by people who know much about computers. In this case, For this to merely be a bad benchmark and not worthless, the kind of calculation would have to be defined. There is increasing interest in massively parallel neural nets, genetic algorithms, and other forms of chaotic or complexity theory computing. No. There was a huge uptick in interest in neural nets in 2012 due to the AlexNet paper, but note that this prediction is an and would have been untrue even in the OR form in 2009. Research has been initiated on reverse engineering the brain through both destructive and non invasive scans undefined. Very vague and could easily argue this either way. Autonomous nano-engineered machines have been demonstrated and include their own computational controls. Unknown, to me. I don't really care to try to look this one up since the accuracy rate of these predictions is so low that whether or not this one is accurate doesn't matter and I don't know where I'd look this one up. 2019. The computational capacity of a $4,000 computing device, in 1999 dollars, is approximately equal to the computational capability of the human brain, 20 quadrillion calculations per second. Undefined. For above prediction on computational power, raw ops per second is basically meaningless. The summed computational powers of all computers is comparable to the total brain power of the human race. Undefined. First, you need a non-stupid metric to compare these by. Computers are embedded everywhere in the environment, inside of furniture, jewelry, walls, clothing, etc. No. There are small computers, but this is arguing they're ubiquitously inside common household items, which they're not. People experience 3 to d virtual reality through glasses and contact lenses that beam images directly to their retinas, retinal display. Coupled with an auditory source, headphones, users can remotely communicate with other people and access the Internet. No. These special glasses and contact lenses can deliver augmented reality and virtual reality in three different ways. First, they can project heads-up displays across the user's field of vision, superimposing images that stay in place in the environment regardless of the user's perspective or orientation. Second, virtual objects or people could be rendered in fixed locations by the glasses, so when the user's eyes look elsewhere, the objects appear to stay in their places. Third, the devices could block out the real world entirely and fully immerse the user in a virtual reality environment. No. You need different devices for these use cases and for the HUD use case, The field of view is small and images do not stay in place regardless of the user's perspective or orientation. People communicate with their computers via two-way speech and gestures instead of with keyboards. Furthermore, most of this interaction occurs through computerized assistants with different personalities that the user can select or customize. Dealing with computers thus becomes more and more like dealing with a human being. No. Some people sometimes do this, but I'd say this implies with instead that speech and gestures have replaced keyboards, which they have not. Most business transactions or information inquiries involve dealing with a simulated person. No. Most people own more than one PC, though the concept of what a computer is has changed considerably. Computers are no longer limited in design to laptops or CPUs contained in a large box connected to a monitor. Instead, devices with computer capabilities come in all sorts of unexpected shapes and sizes. No if you literally use the definition of most people and consider a PC to be a general-purpose computing device, which a smartphone arguably is, but probably yes for people at, say, 90% ill wealth and above in the US or other high SES countries. Cables connecting computers and peripherals have almost completely disappeared. No. Rotating computer hard drives are no longer used. No. Three-dimensional nanotube lattices are the dominant computing substrate. No. No. Massively parallel neural nets and genetic algorithms are in wide use. No. Note the use of and here. Destructive scans of the brain and non-invasive brain scans have allowed scientists to understand the brain much better. The algorithms that allow the relatively small genetic code of the brain to construct a much more complex organ are being transferred into computer neural nets. No. Pinhead-sized cameras are everywhere. No. Nanotechnology is more capable and is in use for specialized applications, yet it has not yet made it into the mainstream. Nano-engineered machines begin to be used in manufacturing. Unknown, to me. I don't really care to try to look this one up since the accuracy rate of these predictions is so low that whether or not this one is accurate doesn't matter and I don't know where I'd look this one up. Thin, lightweight, handheld displays with very high resolutions are the preferred means for viewing documents. The aforementioned computer eyeglasses and contact lenses are also used for this same purpose, and all download the information wirelessly. No. Ironically, a lot of people prefer things like Kindles for viewing documents, but they're quite low resolution. A 2019 Kindle has a resolution of 800 by 600. Many people still prefer paper for viewing documents for a variety of reasons. Computers have made paper books and documents almost completely obsolete. No. Most learning is accomplished through intelligent, Adaptive courseware presented by computer simulated teachers. In the learning process, human adults fill the counselor and mentor roles instead of being academic instructors. These assistants are often not physically present and help students remotely. Students still learn together and socialize, though this is often done remotely via computers. No. All students have access to computers. No. True in some places, though. Most human workers spend the majority of their time acquiring new skills and knowledge. No. Blind people wear special glasses that interpret the real world for them through speech. Sighted people also use these glasses to amplify their own abilities. Retinal and neural implants also exist, but are in limited use because they are less useful. No. Deaf people use special glasses that convert speech into text or signs, and music into images or tactile sensations. Cochlear and other implants are also widely used. Yes. I think this is actually a no in terms of whether or not Kurzweil's vision was realized, but these are possible and it isn't the case that no one was using these. I'm bundling the cochlear implant prediction in here because it's so boring. It was arguably already true when the prediction was made in 1999 and reaching the usage rate it did in 2019 basically just continued slow linear growth of implant rate, i.e., people not rejecting the idea of cochlear implants outright and or something else superseding cochlear implants. People with spinal cord injuries can walk and climb steps using computer-controlled nerve stimulation and exoskeletal robotic walkers. No. Computers are also found inside of some humans in the form of cybernetic implants. These are most commonly used by disabled people to regain normal physical faculties, for example retinal implants allow the blind to see and spinal implants coupled with mechanical legs allow the paralyzed to walk. No, at least not at the ubiquity implied by Kurzweil's vision. Language translating machines are of much higher quality, and are routinely used in conversations. Yes, but mostly because this prediction is basically meaningless, language translation was of a much higher quality in 2019 than 1999. Effective language technologies, natural language processing, speech recognition, speech synthesis, exist. Yes, although arguable. Access to the internet is completely wireless and provided by wearable or implanted computers. No. No people are able to wirelessly access the internet at all times from almost anywhere. No. This might feel true inside a big city, but is obviously untrue even on a road trip that stays on the US interstate highway system and becomes even less true if you drive away from the interstate and less true once again if you go to places that can't be driven to. Devices that deliver sensations to the skin surface of their users, for example tight body suits and gloves, are also sometimes used in virtual reality to complete the experience. Virtual sex in which two people are able to have sex with each other through virtual reality, or in which a human can have sex with a simulated partner that only exists on a computer, becomes a reality. Just as visual and auditory virtual reality have come of age, haptic technology has fully matured and is completely convincing, yet requires the user to enter a VR booth. It is commonly used for computer sex and remote medical examinations. It is the preferred sexual medium since it is safe and enhances the experience. No. Worldwide economic growth has continued. There has not been a global economic collapse. Yes. The vast majority of business interactions occur between humans and simulated retailers, or between a human's virtual personal assistant and a simulated retailer. No. Depends on what simulated retailers means here. In conjunction with how Kurzweil talks about simulations, VR, haptic devices that are fully immersive, etc., I'd say this is a no. Household robots are ubiquitous and reliable. No. Computers do most of the vehicle driving, humans are in fact prohibited from driving on highways unassisted. Furthermore, when humans do take over the wheel, the onboard computer system constantly monitors their actions and takes control whenever the human drives recklessly. As a result, there are very few transportation accidents. No. Most roads now have automated driving systems, networks of monitoring and communication devices that allow computer controlled automobiles to safely navigate. No prototype personal flying vehicles using microflaps exist. They are also primarily computer controlled. Unknown, to me. I don't really care to try to look this one up since the accuracy rate of these predictions is so low that whether or not this one is accurate doesn't matter and I don't know where I'd look this one up. Humans are beginning to have deep relationships with automated personalities, which hold some advantages over human partners. The depth of some computer personalities convinces some people that they should be accorded more rights. No. A growing number of humans believe that their computers and the simulated personalities they interact with are intelligent to the point of human-level consciousness. Experts dismiss the possibility that any could pass the Turing test. Human-robot relationships begin as simulated personalities become more convincing. No. Interaction with virtual personalities becomes a primary interface. No. Depends on what primary interface means here, but I think not given Kurzweil's overall vision. Public places and workplaces are ubiquitously monitored to prevent violence and all actions are recorded permanently. Personal privacy is a major political issue, and some people protect themselves with unbreakable computer codes. No. True of some public spaces in some countries, but untrue as stated. The basic needs of the underclass are met. No. Not even true when looking at some high SES countries, like the US, let alone the entire world. Virtual artists, creative computers capable of making their own art and music, emerge in all fields of the arts? No. Maybe arguably technically true, but I think not even close in spirit in 2019. The list above only uses the bulleted predictions from Wikipedia under the section that has per time frame sections. If you pull in other ones from the same page that could be evaluated, which includes predictions like nanotechnology-based flying cars would be available, by 2026, this doesn't hugely change the accuracy rate and actually can't due to the relatively small number of other predictions. Jacques Fresco. The foreword to Fresco's book gives a pretty good idea of what to expect from Fresco's predictions. Looking Forward is an imaginative and fascinating book in which the authors take you on a journey into the culture and technology of the 21st century. After an introductory section that discusses the things that shape your future you will explore the whys and wherefores of the unfamiliar, alarming, but exciting world of a hundred years from now. You will see this society through the eyes of Scott and Heller, a couple of the next century. Their living quarters are equipped with a Cybernator, a seemingly magical computer device, but one that is based on scientific principles now known. It regulates sleeping hours, communications throughout the world, an incredible underwater living complex, and even the daily caloric intake of the young couple. They are in their 40s but can expect to live 200 years. The world that Scott and Heller live in is a world that has achieved full weather control, has developed a finger sized computer that is implanted in the brain of every baby at birth and the babies are scientifically incubated the women of the 21st century need not go through the pains of childbirth, and that has perfected genetic manipulation that allows the human race to be improved by means of science. Economically, the world is utopian by our standards. Jobs, wages, and money have long since been phased out. Nothing has a price tag, and personal possessions are not needed. Nationalism has been surpassed, and total disarmament has been achieved, educational technology has made schools and teachers obsolete. The children learn by doing, and are independent in this friendly world by the time they are five. The chief source of this greater society is the Correlation Center, Corson, a gigantic complex of computers that serves but never enslaves mankind. Corson regulates production, communication, transportation and all other burdensome and monotonous tasks of the past. This frees men and women to achieve creative challenging experiences rather than empty lives of meaningless leisure. Obviously this book is speculative, but it is soundly based upon scientific developments that are now known. As mentioned above, Fresco makes the claim that it's possible to predict the future and to do so, one should start with the values people will have in the future. Many predictions are about the 21st century so can arguably be defended as still potentially accurate, although the way the book talks about the stark divide between the 20th century and the 21st century, we should have already seen the changes mentioned in the book since we're no longer in the 20th century and the book makes no reference to a long period of transition in between. Fresco does make some specific statements about things that will happen by particular dates, which are covered later. For the 21st century, his predictions from the first section of his book are there will be no need for laws, such as a law against murder because humans will no longer do things like murder, which only happen today because our sick society conditions people to commit depraved acts. Today we are beginning to identify various things which condition us to act as we do. In the future the factors that condition human beings to kill or do other things that harm fellow human beings will be understood and eliminated. The entire section is very behaviorist and assumes that we'll be able to operant condition people out of all bad behaviors. Increased understanding of human nature will lead to Total freedom, including no individual desire for conformity. Total economic abundance, which will lead to the end of competitiveness, acquisitiveness, thriftiness, etc. Total freedom from disease. Deeper feelings of love and friendship to an extent that cannot be understood by those who live in the twentieth-century world of scarcity. Total lack of guilt about sex. Appreciation of all kinds of natural beauty, as opposed to the narrow standards of the beauty queen mentality of today as well as eschewing any kind of artificial beauty. Complete self-knowledge, lack of any repression, leading to produce a new dimension of relaxed living that is almost unknown today. Elevation of the valuing of others at the same level people value themselves or local communities, i.e., complete selflessness and an end to anything resembling tribalism or nationalism. All people will be multidimensional and sort of good at everything. This is contrasted with for the first time all men and women will live a multidimensional life, limited only by their imagination. In the 20th century we could classify people by saying, he is good in sports. She is an intellectual. He is an artist. In the future all people will have the time and the facilities to accept the fantastic variety of challenges that life offers them. As mentioned above, the next part of Fresco's prediction is about how science will work. He writes about how the scientific method is only applied in a limited fashion, which led to thousands of years of slow progress. But, unlike in the 20th century, in the 21st century, people will be free from bias and apply the scientific method in all areas of their life, not just when doing science. People will be fully open to experimentation in all aspects of life and all people will have a habitual open-mindedness coupled with a rigid insistence that all problems be formulated in a way that permits factual checking. This will, among other things, lead to complete self-knowledge of one's own limitations for all people as well as an end to unhappiness due to suboptimal political and social structures. The success of the method of science in solving almost every problem put to it will give individuals in the 21st century a deep confidence in its effectiveness. They will not be afraid to experiment with new ways of feeling, thinking, and acting, for they will have observed the self-corrective aspect of science. Science gives us the latest word, not the last word. They will know that if they try something new in personal or social life, the happiness it yields can be determined after sufficient experience has accumulated. They will adapt to changes in a relaxed way as they zigzag toward the achievement of their values. They will know that there are better ways of doing things than have been used in the past, and they will be determined to experiment until they have found them they will know that most of the unhappiness of human beings in the mid-20th century was not due to the lack of shiny new gadgets, it was due, in part, to not using the scientific method to check out new political and social structures that could have yielded greater happiness for them. After discussing at a high level the implications on people and society, Fresco gets into specifics, saying that doing everything with computers, what Fresco calls a cybernated society, could be achieved by 1979 giving everyone a post-tax income of $100k slash year in 1969 dollars, about $800k slash year in 2022 How would you like to have a guaranteed life income of $100,000 per year, with no taxes? And how would you like to earn this income by working a three-hour day, one day per week, for a five-year period of your life, providing you have a six-months vacation each year? Sound fantastic? Not at all with modern technology. This is not 21st century pie in the sky. It could probably be achieved in 10 years in the United States if we applied everything we now know about automation and computers to produce a cybernated society. It probably won't be done this rapidly, for it would take some modern thinking applied in an intelligent crash program. Such a crash program was launched to develop the atomic bomb in a little over four years. Other predictions about cybernation Manufacturing will be fully automated, to the point that people need to do no more than turn on the factory to have everything run and maintain itself. This will lead to maximum efficiency. Since there will be no need for human labor, the price of items like t-shirts will be so low that they'll be free since there's no need for items to cost anything when the element of human labor is removed. The elimination of human labor will lead to a life of leisure for everyone. Fresco notes that his previous figure of $100k slash year, $1969, is meaningless and could just as easily be $1m slash year, $1969, since everything will be free a cybernetically manufactured item produced anywhere on Earth will be able to be delivered anywhere on Earth within 24 hours. Michio Kaku. By 2005? The complete human genome will be decoded by the year 2005, giving us an owner's manual for a human being. Half credit. Actually technically known as the human genome project was declared complete in 2003, but had only decoded 85% of the genome. Actually decoding the human genome took until January 2022. I'll give this half credit since many people would argue that the declared completion of the Human Genome Project should mean this prediction was correct. During the 21st century implied to not be something that happens at the very end, but something that's happening throughout. It will be difficult to be a research scientist in the future without having some working knowledge of quantum mechanics, computer science, and biology, due to increasing synergy and cross-fertilization between these fundamental fields silicon computer chips will hit a roadblock that will be unlocked via DNA research allowing for computation on organic molecules. Increased pace of scientific progress due to intense synergy. In 2020, commodity prices down 60%, from 1997 prices, due to wealth becoming based on knowledge, trade being global, and markets being linked electronically, continuing a long-term trend of reduced commodity prices. No. CRB commodity price index was up in 2020 compared to 1997 is up further in 2022. Microprocessors is cheap as scrap paper due to Moore's law scaling continuing with no speed bump until 2020, 10 cents in 2000, 1 cent in 2010, 1 tenth of a cent in 2020. No. Moore's law scaling curve changed and microprocessors did not, in general, cost 1 cent in 2010 or 1 tenth of a cent in 2020. Above will give us will give us smart homes, cars, TVs, clothes, jewelry, and money. No due to and and comments implying total ubiquity, but actually a fairly good directional prediction. We will speak to our appliances, and they will speak back. No due to the implied ubiquity here, but again directionally pretty good. The internet will wire up the entire planet and evolve into a membrane consisting of millions of computer networks, creating an intelligent planet. No due on intelligent planet. Moore's law, silicon scaling will continue until 2020, at which point quantum effects will necessarily dominate and the fabled age of silicon will end. No. Advances in DNA sequencing will continue until roughly 2020, before it stops. Literally thousands of organisms will have their complete DNA code unraveled. Maybe? Not sure if this was hundreds or thousands. Also, the lack of complete sequencing of the human genome project when it was complete may also have some analog here. I didn't score this one because I don't have the background for it it may be possible for anyone on earth to have their personal DNA code stored on a CD. Not counting this as a prediction because it's non-falsifiable due to the use of may. Many genetic diseases will be eliminated by injecting people's cells with the correct gene. No. Because cancer is now being revealed to be a series of genetic mutations, large classes of cancers may be curable at last, without invasive surgery or chemotherapy. Not counting this as a prediction because it's non-falsifiable due to the use of may. In or near 2020, bottlenecks in DNA sequencing will stop progress of DNA sequencing. No. In or near 2020, bottlenecks in silicon will stop advances in computer performance. No. Computer performance slowed its advancement long before 2020 and then didn't stop in 2020. The combination of the two above will, after 2020, require optical computers, molecular computers, DNA computers, and quantum computers for progress to advance in biology and computer science. No. Maybe some of these things will be critical in the future, but they're not necessary conditions for advancements in computing and biology in or around 2020. Focus of biology will shift from sequencing DNA to understanding the functions of genes. I'm not qualified to judge this one. Something something may prove the key to solving key diseases. Not counting this as a prediction because it's non-falsifiable due to the use of may. Many predictions based around the previous prediction that microprocessors would be as cheap as scrap paper, one-tenth of a cent or less, that also ignore the cost of everything around the processor. No, collapsing these into one bullet reduces the number of incorrect predictions counted, but that shouldn't make too much difference in this case. A variety of non-falsifiable may predictions about self-driving car progress by 2010 and 2020. VR will be an integral part of the world. No. People will use full-body suits and electric field sensors. No. Exploring simulations in virtual reality will be a critical part of how science proceeds. No. A lot of predictions about how computers may be critical to a variety of fields. Not counting this as a prediction because it's non-falsifiable due to the use of may. Semiconductor lithography below 1 micrometer, 100 nanometers, will need to switch from UV to X-rays or electrons. No. Modern 5 nanometers processes use UV. Some more may and likely non-falsifiable predictions. That gives a prediction rate of 3%. I stopped reading at this point, so may have missed a number of correct predictions. But, even if the rest of the book was full of correct predictions, the correct prediction rate is likely to be low. There were also a variety of predictions that I didn't include because they were statements that were true in the present. For example, if the dirt road of the internet is made up of copper wires, then the paved information highway will probably be made of laser-bar optics. Lasers are the perfect quantum device an instrument which creates beams of coherent light, light beams which vibrate in exact synchronization with each other. This exotic form of light, which does not occur naturally in the universe, is made possible by manipulating the electrons making quantum jumps between orbits within an atom. This doesn't seem like much of a prediction since, when the book was written, the information highway already used a lot of fiber. Throughout the book, there's a lot of mysticism around quantumness which is, for example, On display above and cited as a reason that microprocessors will become obsolete by 2020, they're not quantum, and fiber optics won't, it's quantum. John Naisbitt. Here are a few quotes that get at the methodology of Naisbitt's hit book, Megatrends. For the past 15 years, I have been working with major American corporations to try to understand what is really happening in the United States by monitoring local events and behavior, because collectively what is going on locally is what is going on in America. Despite the conceits of New York and Washington, Almost nothing starts there. In the course of my work, one have been overwhelmingly impressed with the extent to which America is a bottom-up society, that is, where new trends and ideas begin in cities and local communities, for example, Tampa, Hartford, San Diego, Seattle, and Denver, not New York City or Washington, D.C. My colleagues and I have studied this great country by reading its local newspapers. We have discovered that trends are generated from the bottom-up, fads from the top-down. The findings in this book are based on an analysis of more than 2 million local articles about local events in the cities and towns of this country during a 12-year period. Out of such highly localized databases, I have watched the general outlines of a new society slowly emerge. We learn about this society through a method called content analysis, which has its roots in World War II. During that war, intelligence experts sought to find a method for obtaining the kinds of information on enemy nations that public opinion polls would have normally provided. Under the leadership of Paul Lazarsfeld and Harold Laswell, later to become well-known communication theorists, it was decided that we would do an analysis of the content of the German newspapers, which we could get, although some days after publication. The strain on Germany's people, industry, and economy began to show up in its newspapers, even though information about the country's supplies, production, transportation, and food situation remained secret. Over time, it was possible to piece together what was going on in Germany and to figure out whether conditions were improving or deteriorating by carefully tracking local stories about factory openings, closings, and production targets, about train arrivals, departures, and delays, and so on. Although this method of monitoring public behavior and events continues to be the choice of the intelligence community, the United States annually spends millions of dollars in newspaper content analysis in various parts of the world, it has rarely been applied commercially. In fact, the Nasebit Group is the first and presently the only, organization to utilize this approach in analyzing our society. Why are we so confident that content analysis is an effective way to monitor social change? Simply stated, because the news hole in a newspaper is a closed system. For economic reasons, the amount of space devoted to news in a newspaper does not change significantly over time. So, when something new is introduced, something else or a combination of things must be omitted. You cannot add unless you subtract. It is the principle of forced choice in a closed system. In this forced choice situation, societies add new preoccupations and forget old ones. In keeping track of the ones that are added and the ones that are given up, we are in a sense measuring the changing share of the market that competing societal concerns command. Evidently, societies are like human beings. A person can keep only so many problems and concerns in his or her head or heart at any one time. If new problems or concerns are introduced, some existing ones are given up. All of this is reflected in the collective news hole that becomes a mechanical representation of society sorting out its priorities. Nasebit rarely makes falsifiable predictions. For example, on the information society, Nasebit says. In our new information society, the time orientation is to the future. This is one of the reasons we are so interested in it. We must now learn from the present how to anticipate the future. When we can do that, we will understand that a trend is not destiny we will be able to learn from the future the way we have been learning from the past. This change in time orientation accounts for the growing popular and professional interest in the future during the 1970s. For example, the number of universities offering some type of futures-oriented degree has increased from 2 in 1969 to over 45 in 1978. Membership in the World Future Society grew from 200 in 1967 to well over 30,000 in 1982 and the number of popular and professional periodicals devoted to understanding or studying the future has dramatically increased from 12 in 1965 to more than 122 in 1978. This could be summed up as in the future, people will think more about the future. Pretty much any case one might make that Nayspit's claims ended up being true or false could be argued against. In the chapter on the information society, one of the most specific predictions is. New information technologies will at first be applied to old industrial tasks, then. Gradually, give birth to new activities, processes, and products. I'd say that this is false in the general case, but it's vague enough that you could argue it's true. A rare, falsifiable comment is this prediction about the price of computers. The home computer explosion is upon us soon to be followed by a software implosion to fuel it. It is projected that by the year 2000, the cost of a home computer system computer, printer, monitor, modem, and so forth should only be about that of the present telephone radio recorder television system. From a quick search, it seems that reference devices cost something like $300 in 1982? That would be $535 in 2000, which wasn't really a reasonable price for a computer as well as the peripherals mentioned and implied by and so forth. Gerard K. O'Neill. We discussed O'Neill's predictions on space colonization in the body of this post. This section contains a bit on his other predictions. On computers, O'Neill says that in 2081 any major central computer will have rapid access to at least 100 million million words of memory, the number one followed by 14 zeros. A computer of that memory will be no larger than a suitcase. It will be fast enough to carry out a complete operation in more more time than it takes light to travel from this page to your eye, and perhaps a tenth of that time, which is saying that a machine will have 100 words of RAM or, to round things up simply, let's say 1 petabyte of RAM and a clock speed of something between 300 megahertz and 6 gigahertz, depending on how far away from your face you hold a book. On other topics, O'Neill predicts we'll have fully automated manufacturing, people will use 6 times as much energy per capita in 2081 as in 1980, pollution other than carbon dioxide will be a solved problem, coal plants will still be used, most, 50% to 95% of energy will be renewable, with the caveat that ground-based solar is a myth that can never work, and that wind tide. And hydro are all forms of solar that, even combined with geothermal thrown in, can't reasonably provide enough energy, that solar power from satellites is the answer to then current and future energy needs. In The Technology Edge, O'Neill makes predictions for the 10 years following the book's publication in 1983. O'Neill says the book is primarily based on interviews with chief executives. It was written at a time when many Americans were concerned about the impending Japanese dominance of the world. O'Neill says As an American, I cannot help being angry not at the Japanese for succeeding, but at the forces of timidity, short-sightedness, greed, laziness and misdirection here in America that have mired us down so badly in recent years, sapped our strength and kept us from equal achievements. As we will see, opportunities exist now for the opening of whole new industries that can become even greater than those we have lost to the Japanese. Are we to delay and lose those too? In an interview about the book, O'Neill said. Microengineering, robotics, genetic engineering, magnetic flight, family aircraft, and space science. If the US does not compete successfully in these areas, he warns, it will lose the technological and economic leadership it has enjoyed. This seems like a big miss with both serious false positives as well as false negatives. O'Neill failed to cite industries that ended up being important to the then-continued US dominance of the world economy, e.g., software, and also predicted that space and flight were much more important than they turned out to be. On the specific mechanism, O'Neill also generally misses, for example, in the book, O'Neill cites the lack of U.S. Ph.D. production and people heading directly into industry as a reason the U.S. was falling behind and would continue to fall behind Japan, but in a number of important industries, like software, a lot of the major economic business contributions have been made by people going to industry without a Ph.D. The U.S. didn't need to massively increase Ph.D. production in the decades following 1983 to stay economically competitive. There's quite a bit of text dedicated to a commonly discussed phenomenon at the time, how Japanese companies are going to wipe the floor with American and European companies because they're able to make and execute long-term plans, unlike American companies. I'll admit that it's a bit of a mystery to me how short-term thinking has worked so well for American companies and I would have, at least to date. Patrick Dixon. Dixon opens with. The next millennium will witness the greatest challenges to human survival ever in human history, and many of them will face us in the early years of its first century. The future has six faces, each of which will have a dramatic effect on all of us in the third millennium. Fast, urban, radical, universal, tribal, ethical, which spells out future. Out of these six faces cascade over 500 key expectations, specific predictions as logical workings out of these important global trends. These range from inevitable to high probability to lower probability, but still significant enough to require strategic planning and personal preparation. In the third millennium things reminiscent of the previous millennium will be outdated by, variously 2004 2005 2020 2025 for example the real winners will be those who tap into this huge shift and help define it what television producer will want to produce second millennial tv what clothes designer dare risk his annual collection being labeled as a rehash of tired late 20th century fashions no late 20th century fashion is very in right now and other 20th century fashions were in a decade ago pre millennialists tend to see 2000 to 2010 as just another decade The trends of the 80s and 90s continue, just more of the same. Post-millennialists are very different. They are products of the third millennium. They live in it. They are 21st century people, a new age. Expect to see one of the greatest generation gaps in recent history. Subjective, but no Dixon assigns huge importance to the millennium counter turning over and says things like few people have woken up so far to the impact of the millennium. My children are the M generation their entire adult existence will be lived in the third millennium. Expect to see the m-factor affect every aspect of life on earth. The human brain makes sense of the past by dividing it into intervals, the day-month-year. Then there are decades and centuries. And four-time events are about to hit us in the same instant. New year, decade, century, and millennium, but the counter-turning over doesn't appear to have caused any particularly drastic changes. Expect to see millennial culture clashes between opposing trends, a world increasingly of extremes with tendencies to intolerance as groups fight to dominate the future. Basically yes, although his stated reasoning, not quoted, as to why this should happen at the turn of the century, as opposed to any other time, is nonsensical as it applies to all of history. Market dominance power will become less important as micromarkets become more important. No, a bit about smaller markets existing was correct, but huge players, the big one trillion dollars companies of what Dixon calls the third millennium, Apple, Microsoft, Google, and Amazon, have a huge amount of power of these markets and has not reduced either the economic or cultural importance of what Dixon calls dominance. Expect more wild cards over the next 20 years, from 1998 to 2018, such as war, nuclear accident or the unplanned launch of nuclear weapons, vast volcanic eruptions or plagues or even a comet collision with enormous destructive power. No, this would have sounded much better if it included COVID, but if we look at the 20 years prior to the book being published, There was the fall of the Soviet Union, Tiananmen Square, etc., which isn't obviously less wild card than we saw from 1998 to 2018. Less emphasis on economic growth, due to increased understanding that wealth doesn't make people happy. No, Dixon was writing not too long after peak growth is unsustainable and should be deliberately curtailed to benefit humanity. That's the end of the introduction. Some of these predictions are arguably too early to call since, in places, Dixon writes as if FutureWise is about the entire third millennia. But Dixon also notes that drastic changes are expected in the first years and decades of the 21st century, and these generally have not come to pass, both the specific cases where Dixon calls out particular timelines or in the cases where Dixon doesn't name a particular timeline. In general, I'm trying to only include predictions where it seems that Dixon is referring to the 2022 timeframe or before, but his general vagueness makes it difficult to make the right call 100% of the time. The next chapter is titled Fast and is about the first of the six faces of the future expect further rapid realignments, analogous to the fall of the Soviet Union, with North Korea at the top of the list as the last outpost of Stalinism. North Korea could crash at any moment, spilling thousands of starving refugees into China, South Korea, and Japan. No has been significant political upheaval in many places, Thailand, Arab Spring, Sudan, etc. North Korea hasn't been in the top 10 political upheavals list, let alone at the top of the list. Expect increasing north-south tension as emerging economies come to realize that abolishing all trade and currency restrictions in a rush for growth also places their countries at the mercy of rumors, hunches, and market opinion. No to there being a particular increase in north-south tension. Expect a growing backlash against globalized Iton, with some nations reduced to economic slavery by massive, destabilizing, currency flows. No due to the second part of this sentence, although highly subjective a bunch of unscored predictions that are gimmies about vague things continuing to happen, such as expect large institutions to continue to make, and lose, huge fortunes trying to outguess volatile markets in these countries. On the example prediction that's quite vague and could be argued either way on the spirit of the prediction, but is very easy to satisfy as stated since it only requires, for example, two hedge funds to make major bets on volatility that either win or lose, there's a list of similar predictions that seem extremely easy to satisfy as written that I'm not going to include. Expect increasingly complex investment instruments to be developed, so that a commodity, from the context, this is clearly referring to actual commodities markets and not things like mortgages, sometimes rises or falls dramatically as a large market intervention is made, linked to a completely different and apparently unrelated event. Yes, although this trend was definitely already happening and well known when Dixon wrote his book, making this a very boring prediction, management theory is still immature expect that to change over the next two decades as rigorous statistical and analytical tools are devised to prove or disprove the key elements of success in management methods. No, drastically underestimates the difficulty of rigorously quantifying the impact of different management methods in a way that only someone who hasn't done serious data analysis would do. Seem to have lost a line here, sorry. Yes, although this statement would be more compelling with less stated detail. Expect management historians to become sought after, analyzing industrial successes and failures during the previous industrial revolution and at the turn of the 20th century. No, some people do this kind of work, but they're not particularly sought after. The context of the statement implies they'd be sought after by CEOs or other people trying to understand how to run actual businesses, which is generally not the case. Expect consumer surveys and market research to be sidelined by futurology-based customer profiles. Market research only tells you what people want today. What's so smart about that? No, not that people don't try to predict trends, but the context for this prediction incorrectly implies that market research is trivial anyone can go out and ask the same questions, so where's the real competitive edge? But of course the simple statement that market research and present-day measurement are obsolete are simply wrong. Flat rate global calls with no long-distance changes. Yes as written since you can call people anywhere with quite a few apps, so I'll give Dixon this one, although the context implies that his reasoning was totally incorrect. For one thing, he seems to be talking about phone calls and thinks traditional phone calls will be important, but he also makes some incorrect statements about telecom cost structures, such as measuring the time and distance of every call is so expensive as a proportion of total call costs, which was predicted to happen because the cost of calls themselves would fall, causing the cost of metadata tracking of calls to dominate the cost of the calls themselves. Even if that came to pass, the cost of tracking how long a call was and where to call was to would be tiny and, in fact, My phone bill still tracks this information even though I'm not charged for it because the cost is so small that it would be absurd not to track other than for privacy reasons. Expect most households in wealth nations to have several phone numbers by 2005. This means that most executives will have access to far more telephone lines at home than they do at work today for their personal use. No, there's a way to read this as some kind of prediction that was correct, but from the context, Dixon is clearly talking about people having a lot of phone numbers and phone lines and makes a statement elsewhere that implies explosive growth in the number of landline phone numbers and lines people will have at home. Mobile phones used in most places landline phones are used today. Yes, basically totally on the nose, although he has a story about a predicted future situation that isn't right due to some incorrect guesses about how interfaces would play out. Many emerging economies will go straight to mobile and leapfrog existing technically. Yes. Ubiquitous use of satellite phones by traveling execs, very important people by 2005. No, many execs, VPs, etc., still impacted by incomplete cell coverage and no sat phone in 2005. The next decade, by 2008, cell phones will seamlessly switch to satellite coverage when necessary. No. Phone trees will have switched from much-hated push-button systems to voice recognition by 2002, with seamless basically perfect recognition by 2005. No, these systems are now commonplace in 2022, but many people I know find them to be significantly worse than push-button systems. Computational power per PC will continue to double every 18 months indefinitely, there's a statement that implies this will continue at least through 2018, but there's no implication that this will end level off at any time after that. No, even at the time, people had already observed that performance scaling was moving to a slower growth curve. Future small displays will be able to be magnified. No, or not yet, anyway. If the prediction means that software zoom will be possible, that was possible and even built into operating systems well before the book was published, so that's not really a prediction about the future. Paper thin display sheets by 2005? No. Projection displays will be in common use, replacing many uses of CRTs. No projectors are used today, but in many of the same applications they were used in at the time the book was written. Many CRT use cases will be replaced by lasers projected onto the retina. No, or not yet anyway, even if this happens at some point, I would rate this as a no since this section was about what would kill the CRT and this technology was not instrumental in killing the CRT. Digital cameras rival film cameras in terms of image quality by 2020. Yes, technically, yes, as written, but the way this is written implies that digital cameras will just have caught up to film cameras in 2020 when this happened quite a long time ago, so I'd say that Dixon was wrong but made this prediction vague enough that it just happens to be correct as written. For consumer use, Digital cameras replace 35mm film by 2010. Yes, but same issue as above where Dixon really underestimated how quickly digital cameras would improve. Ultra-high-definition TV cameras replace film in most situations by 2005. Yes. Software will always be buggy because new chips will be released at a pace that means that programmers can't keep up with bug fixes because they need to rewrite the software for new chips. Yes, although the reason was completely wrong. Despite the obvious trueness that software bugginess will continue for quite some time. I'm going to include more of Dixon's text here since a lot of readers are programmers who will have opinions on why computers are buggy and will be able to directly evaluate Dixon's reasoning with no additional context. Software will always be full of bugs. Desktop computers today are so powerful that even if technology stands still it will take the world's programmers at least 20 years to export their capability to the full. The trouble is that they have less than 20 months, because by then a new generation of machines will be around. So brand new code was written for Pentium chips. The bugs were never sorted out in the old versions and bugs in the new ones will never be either, for the same reason. Dixon's reasoning as to why software is buggy is completely wrong. It is not because Intel releases a new chip and programmers have to abandon their old code and write code for the new chip. This level of incorrectness of reasoning generally holds for Dixon's comments even when he really nails a prediction and doesn't include some kind of because that invalidates the prediction. Computer disaster recovery will become more important, resulting in lawsuits against backup companies being a major feature of the next century. No, not that there aren't any lawsuits, but lawsuits over backup data loss aren't a major feature of this century. Home workers will be vulnerable to data loss will eventually back up data online to computers in other cities as the ultimate security. Yes, although the reasoning here was incorrect. Dixon concluded this due to the ratio of hard disk sizes, greater than equals 2 GB, to floppy disk sizes, less than equals 2 MB, which caused him to conclude that local backups are impossible, would take more than 1,000 floppy disks, but even at the time Dixon was writing, cheap, large, portable disks were available, zip drives, etc., and tape backups were possible. Much greater expenditure on antivirus software, with monthly updates of antivirus software, and antivirus companies creating viruses to force people to buy antivirus software. No, MS basically obsoleted commercial antivirus software for what was, by far, the largest platform where users bought antivirus software by providing it for free with Windows. Corp spend on antivirus software is still significant and increases as Core own more computers, but consumer spend dropping drastically seems opposed to what Dixon was predicting new free zones or semi-states will be created to bypass online sales tax and countries will retaliate against ISPs that provide content served from these tax havens. No. Sex industry will be a major driver of internet technologies and technology in general for the next 30 years, up through 2028. No, porn was a major driver of internet technology up to the mid-90s by virtue of being a huge fraction of internet commerce, but this was already changing when Dixon was writing the book, Earke, mp3 surpassed sex as the top internet search term in 1999 and the non-sex internet economy dwarfs the sex internet economy so sex sites are no longer major drivers of tech innovation for example youtube's infra drives cutting edge work in a way that pornhub's infra has no need to the internet will end income tax as we know it by 2020 because transactions will be untraceable no by 2020 sales and property taxes will have replaced income tax due to the above no All new homes in Western countries will be intelligent in 2010, which includes things like the washing machine automatically calling a repair person to get repaired when it has a problem, etc. No. I've lived in multiple post-2010 builds and none of them have been intelligent. Pervasive networking via power outlets by 2005, allowing you to plug into any power outlet in every building anywhere in the world to get networking. No. PC or console as smart home brains by one of the above timelines. No power line networking eliminates other network technologies in the home. No. No more ordering of food by 2000. Scanner in rubbish bin will detect when food is used up and automatically order food. No. Nonsensical idea even if such scanners were reliable and ubiquitous since the system would only know what food was used, not what food the person wants in the future. World will be dominated by the largest telecom companies. No. Dixon's idea was that the importance of the internet and networks would mean that telecom companies would dominate the world, an argument analogous to when people say software companies must grow in importance because software will grow in importance, instead, telecom became a commodity. Power companies will compete with telecoms and high-voltage lines will carry major long-haul traffic by 2001. No. Internet will replace the telephone. Yes. Mobile phone costs drop so rapidly that they're free by 2000. No, arguably yes because some cell phone providers were providing phones free with contract at one point, but once total costs were added up, these weren't cheaper than non-contract phones where those were available. Phones with direct retinal displays and voice recognition very soon, prototypes already exist. No. The end of books, replaced by digital books with more than a hundred paper-thin electronic pages. Just load the text you want, settle back and enjoy. No. Display technology isn't there and it's unclear why something like a Kindle should have Dixon's proposed design instead of just having a one-page display. Cheap printing causes print-on-demand in the home to also be force in the end of books. No, a very trendy idea in the 90s, either in the home or at local, though. Growth in internet radio, expect thousands of amateur disc jockeys, single-issue activists, eccentrics and misfits to be broadcasting to audiences of only a few tens or a few hundred from garages or bedrooms with virtually no equipment other than a hi-fi, a PC, modem, and a microphone, possibly with TV camera. No, drastically underestimated how many people would broadcast and or stream. Mainstream TV companies will lose prime-time viewership. Not scoring this prediction because it's an extremely boring prediction, as Dixon notes, in the book, this had already started happening years before he wrote the book. By 2010, Doctors will de facto be required to defer to computers for diagnoses because computer diagnoses will be so much better than human diagnoses that the legal liability for overruling the computer with human judgment will be prohibitive. No. Surgeons will be judged on how many people died during operations, which will cause surgeons to avoid operating on patients with likely poor outcomes. No. Increased education, several graduate or postgraduate courses in a lifetime. No. Paper credentials devalued, replaced by emphasis on skills not created by studying books. No. Governments set stricter targets for literacy, education, etc. No, or at least not in general for serious targets that are intended to be met. Many lawsuits from people who received poor education. No. Return to single-sex schools, at least regionally in some areas. No. Complete rethink about punishment and education, with the recognition that a no-touch policy isn't working, by 2005. No. Collapse of black-white integration in schooling in U.S. cities. No. College libraries become irrelevant. No or no more so than when the book was written, anyway. Ubiquitous video phones and video phone usage by 2005. No. Dense multimedia and VR experiences in grocery stores. No. General consolidation of retails, except for corner shops, which will survive as car use restrictions being to bite, circa 2010 or so. No. No. Blanket loyalty programs are grocery stores replaced by customized per-person programs. No. VR dominates arcades and theme parks by 2010. No. All-complex prototyping, for manufacturing, done in VR by 2000. No. Rapid prototyping from VR images. No. Pervasive use of voice recognition will cause open offices to get redesigned by 2002. No. Speech recognition to have replaced typing to the extent that typing is considered obsolete and inefficient by 2008, except in cases where silence is necessary. No. Accurate handwriting recognition will exist but become irrelevant by 2008, obsoleted by speech recognition. No. Traditional banking wiped out by the internet. No. Millions of people will buy and sell directly to and from each other via online marketplaces. Not counting this because eBay alone already had 2 million users when the book was published. Traditional brokerage services will become less important over time. More trading will happen via cheap or discount brokerages, online. Yes, but an extremely boring prediction that was already coming to pass when the book was written. Pervasive corporate espionage, an increase over prior eras, made possible by bugs becoming smaller and easier to palace, etc. No. Hard to judge this one, though. Pervasive internal corporate surveillance, microphones and hidden cameras everywhere, including the homes of employees, to fight corporate espionage. No. Retina scans commonly used to verify identity. No. Full self-driving cars, networked with each other, etc. No, or not yet anyway. Cars physically linked together to form trains on the road. No. Widespread tagging of humans with identity chips by 2010. No. This marks the end of the fast chapter from having skimmed the rest of the book, the hit rate isn't really higher later nor is the start of reasoning any different, so I'm going to avoid doing a prediction by prediction grading. Instead, I'll just mention a few highlights, some quite accurate, but mostly not, not included in the prediction accuracy rate since I didn't ensure consistent or random sampling. Extremely limited water supply by 2020, with widespread water metering, recycling of used bathwater, etc., Water so limited that major nations have conflicts over water and water is a major foreign policy instrument by 2010. Waterless cleaning of fabrics, etc. by 2025. Return to classic pop Christian American family and cultural values, increased stigmatization of single-parent households, etc. by 2020. Major prohibition movement against smoking, drinking, psychedelic drugs, etc. Increased risk of major disease epidemics due to higher global population and increased mobility. Due to increasing tribalism, most new wealth created by companies with less than equals 20 employees, of which greater than equals 75% are family owned or controlled and started with family money. Increased global free trade. Death of old economics allow for, for example, low unemployment with no inflationary pressure due to combination of globalization pushing down wages and computerization causing productivity increases. Travel will have virtually no friction by 2000 due to increased automation. You'll be able to buy a plane ticket online. Go to the airport where a scanner will scan you as you walk through security without delay. You'll even be able to skip the ticket-buying process and just walk directly onto a plane, at which point a system will scan an embedded smart card in your watch or skin will allow the system to seamlessly deduct the payment from your bank account. End of left-right politics and rise of single-issue politics and parties, presumably referring to US politics here. Environmentalism the single biggest political issue. Destruction of ozone layer causes people to avoid sun. Vacations in sunny areas and beaches no longer popular. Very accurate weather predictions by 2008, due to newly collected data allowing accurate forecasting. Nuclear power dead, with zero or close to zero active reactors by 2030. Increased concern over damage, cancer from electromagnetic fields. Noise cancelling technology wipes out unpleasant noise in cars and homes. Widespread market for human cloning, with people often raising a genetic clone of themselves instead of conceiving traditionally. Have the capability to design custom viruses, plagues that target particular organs or racial groups by 2010. Comprehensive reform of U.S. legal system to reduce, eliminate spurious lawsuits by 2010. Major growth of religions, particularly Islam and Christianity. Globally, as well as in the U.S., where the importance of Christianity will give rise to things like the Christian Democratic Party and an increasing number of Christian schools. The internet helps guarantee freedom against authoritarian regimes, which can censor newspapers, radio, and TV, but not the internet. Total globalization will cause a new world religion to be created which doesn't come from old ideas and will market itself as dogmatic, exclusive, and superior to old religions. New world order with international laws and international courts, international trade impossible otherwise. Cyberspace has its own governance, With a cyber government and calls for democracy where each email address gets a vote, nation-level governance over cyberspace cannot and will not last, nor will any other benevolent dictatorship of non-elected, unrepresentative authority. Overall accuracy, 879 equals 10%. Toffler. Intro to future shock. Another reservation has to do with the verb will. No serious futurist deals and predictions. These are left for television oracles and newspaper astrologers. Yet to enter every appropriate qualification in a book of this kind would be to bury the reader under an avalanche of maybes. Rather than do this, I have taken the liberty of speaking firmly, without hesitation, trusting that the intelligent reader will understand the stylistic problem. The word will should always be read as though it were preceded by probably or in my opinion. Similarly, all dates applied to future events need to be taken with a grain of judgment. Chapter 1 is about how future shock is going to be a big deal in the future and how we're presently undergoing a revolution. Despite the disclaimer in the intro, there are very few concrete predictions. The first that I can see is in the middle of chapter 2 and isn't even really a prediction, but is a statement that very weakly implies world population growth will continue at the same pace or accelerate. Chapter 1 has a lot of vague statements about how severe future shock will be, and then chapter 2 discusses how the world is changing at an unprecedented rate and cite a population doubling time 11 years to note how much this must change the world since it would require the equivalent of a new Tokyo, Hamburg, Rome, and Rangoon in 11 years, illustrating how shockingly rapid the world is changing. There’s a nod to the creation of future subterranean cities, but stated weakly enough that it can’t really be called a prediction. There’s a similar implicit prediction that economic growth will continue with a doubling time of 15 years, meaning that by the time someone is 30, the amount of stuff, and it's phrased as amount of stuff and not wealth, will have quadrupled and then by the time someone is 70 it will have increased by a factor of 32. This is a stronger implicit prediction than the previous one since the phrasing implies this growth rate should continue for at least 70 years, and is perhaps the first actual prediction in the book. Another such prediction appears later in the chapter, on the speed of travel, which took millions of years to reach 100 miles per hour in the 1880s, only 58 years to reach 400 miles per hour in 1938 and then 20 to double again, and then not much more time before rockets could propel people at 4,000 miles per hour and people circled the earth at 18,000 miles per hour. Strictly speaking, no prediction is made as to the speed of travel in the future, but since the two chapters are about how this increased rate of change will, in the future, cause future shock, citing examples where exponential growth is expected to level off as reasons the future is going to cause future shock would be silly and implicit in the citation is that the speed of travel will continue to grow. Toffler then goes on to cite a series of examples where, at previous times in history, the time between having an idea and applying the idea was large, shrinking as we get closer to the present, where it's very low because we have, with the passage of time, invented all sorts of social devices to hasten the process. Through Chapter 4, Toffler continued to avoid making concrete, specific predictions, but also implied that buildings would be more temporary and, in the United States specifically, there would be an increase in tearing down old buildings, for example, ten-year-old apartment buildings, to build new ones because new buildings would be so much better than old ones that it wouldn't make sense to live in old buildings, and that schools will move to using temporary buildings that are quickly dismantled after they're no longer necessary, perhaps often using geodesic domes. Also, a general increase in modularity, which parts of buildings being swapped out to allow more rapid changes during the short, 25-year life, of a modern building. Another implied prediction is that everything will be rented instead of owned, with specific examples cited of cars and homes, with an extremely rapid growth in the rate of car rentership over ownership continuing through the 70s and the then near future. Through Chapter 5, Toffler continued to avoid making specific predictions, but very strongly implies that the amount of travel people will do for mundane tasks such as committing will hugely increase, making location essentially irrelevant. As with previous implied predictions, this is based on a very rapid increase in what Toffler views as a trend and is implicitly a prediction of the then very near future. Citing people who commute 50k miles in a year and 120 miles in a day and citing stats showing that miles traveled have been increasing. When it comes to an actual prediction, Toffler makes the vague comment. Among those I have characterized as the people of the future, commuting, traveling, and regularly relocating one's family have become second nature. Which, if read very strictly, not technically not a prediction about the future, although it can be implied that people in the future will commute and travel much more. In a similar implicit prediction, Toffler implies that, in the future, corporations will order highly skilled workers to move to whatever location most benefits the corporation and they'll have no choice but to obey if they want to have a career. In Chapter 6, in A Rare Concrete Prediction, Toffler writes, when asked what do you do, the overall pattern of his work life, trend in terms of his trajectory, some obsolete example job types that Toffler presents are machine operator, sales clerk, and computer programmer. Implicit in this section is that career changes will be so rapid and so frequent that the concept of being a computer programmer will be meaningless in the future. It's also implied that the half life of knowledge will be so short in the future that people will no longer accumulate useful knowledge over the course of their career in the future, and people, especially in management, shouldn't expect to move up with age and may be expected to move down with age as their knowledge becomes obsolete and they end up in simpler jobs. It's also implied that more people will work for temp agencies, replacing what would previously have been full time roles. The book is highly US-centric and, in the book, this is considered positive for workers, it will give people more flexibility, without mentioning any of the downsides, lack of benefits, etc. The chapter has some actual explicit predictions about how people will connect to family and friends, but the predictions are vague enough that it's difficult to say if the prediction has been satisfied or not. In Chapter 7, Toffler says that bureaucracies will be replaced by adhocracies. Where bureaucracies had top-down power and put people into well-defined roles. In adhocracies, roles will change so frequently that people won't get stuck into defined roles. Toffler notes that a concern some people have about the future is that, since organizations will get larger and more powerful, people will feel like cogs, but this concern is unwarranted because adhocracy will replace bureaucracy. This will also mean an end to top-down direction because the rapid pace of innovation in the future won't leave time for any top-down decision-making, giving workers power. Furthermore, computers will automate all mundane and routine work, leaving no more need for bureaucracy because bureaucracy will only be needed to control large groups of people doing routine work and has no place in non-routine work. It's implied that in the next 25 to 50 years, we will participate in the end of bureaucracy. As Toffler was writing in 1970, his time frame for that prediction is 1995 to 2020. Chapter 8 takes the theme of everything being quicker and turns it to culture. Toffler predicts that celebrities, politicians, thought stars, famous fictional characters, best-selling books, pieces of art, knowledge, etc., will all have much shorter careers and or durations of relevance in the future. Also, view, widely used, words will be coined more rapidly than in the past. Chapter 9 takes the theme of everything accelerating and notes that social structures and governments are poised to break down under the pressure of rapid change, as evidenced by unrest in Berlin, New York, Turin, Tokyo, Washington, and Chicago. It's possible this is what Toffler is using to take credit for predicting the fall of the Soviet Union— Under the subheading The New Atlantis, Toffler predicts an intense race to own the bottom of the ocean and the associated marine life there, with entire new industries springing up to process the ocean's output. Aquaculture will be as important as agriculture, new textiles, drugs, etc., will come from the ocean. This will be a new frontier, akin to the American frontier, people will colonize the ocean. Toffler says if all this sounds too far off it is sobering to note that Dr. Walter L. Robb, A scientist at General Electric has already kept a hamster alive underwater by enclosing it in a box that is, in effect, an artificial gill-a-synthetic membrane that extracts air from the surrounding water while keeping the water out. Toffler gives the timeline for ocean colonization as long before the arrival of A.D. 2000 inches. Toffler also predicts control over the weather starting in the 70s, that it is clearly only a matter of years before women are able to birth children without the discomfort of pregnancy. I stopped reading at this point because the chapters all seem very similar to each other. Applying the same reasoning to different areas and the rate of accuracy of predictions didn't seem likely to increase in later chapters.